We are disciples, not members of a religion following a list of do's and don'ts, but Christ followers, students, apprentices of Jesus, intent on the same mission he had, a mission that is freedom-based, not reactive, but proactive. Jesus has invited us to do more than simply follow a list of guidelines, because our God is worthy of more than that. His story is greater. If we make everything about Him, if we give our lives away like Him, if we devote ourselves to His church, then we begin a life on mission. We were made to be part of a much bigger story. We were made to find joy in serving others. We were made for life on mission. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you very, very much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Whether here in Auditorium 1 or Auditorium 2, you guys look absolutely lovely. And if you're watching from somewhere, somehow, home, maybe, possibly, wherever you are, thank you for joining us uh, there. Um, this is a weird time <coughs> for a thousand reasons. I know that you know this. But it's a, a surprising weird factor in all of this is since we have reconvened, we have first-time visitors every week since we have reconvened. And if that's you, we really, really appreciate you being here, you can go out to the Welcome Center. We have a team out there in the comments that would love to chat with you uh, uh, with, with perfect diction and articulation behind a mask, which is actually impossible, but they can do it um, if you have any questions about life here at Fellowship. And because things are so crazy, maybe you have some answers too, and we welcome those. Uh, but if you are a first-time visitor, thank you so much for being here. Now, you may know this if you're not first time here. Uh, we are nearing the end of a summer series that we are calling Disciple, and lucky for us, that is a noun and a verb. So we want to know noun, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that he is our teacher and our rabbi, and we're supposed to trust him, obey him, and submit to him. And we're supposed to be his followers and apprentices. Really love that word. But also disciple is a verb. It is about action. So we want to seek to continually be discipled, and we want to make disciples. This is Jesus his last words in Matthew 28, <clears throat> go and make disciples. He did not say, go convert people to a religion, go and make occasional and random church attendees. He did not say that. He said, make disciples. And so this summer, we are trying to consider well what that should look like. The primary way that we are thinking about these things is with a triangle. We'll put it on the screens for you. If you've been here for any of this series, <clears throat> We want this triangle to uh, haunt you in your dreams. That's what we want. <clears throat> Every week, we're throwing it up. We want it to bother you because this is a really simple threefold way to define discipleship. And it's a visual reminder that if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you should be regularly, constantly, daily maybe, thinking about what it means and experiencing life with Jesus, life in community, and life on mission. It's a three-legged stool. It's supposed to be sturdy and stable for life with God. And so today, we'll conclude our three messages on uh, each leg of the stool, if you will. <coughs> Additionally, when we talk about being disciples, we're talking about what it looks like to holistically act on the gospel. 
We're talking about how discipleship is a whole life response to the gospel of Jesus. If I could take the whole summer and like just get it down, put it all in a blender and give one little capsule out of it, it would be something like this. That discipleship is an entire life response to the gospel of Jesus. And it's a whole life response because Jesus gave his whole life so that we could be made new. <clears throat> so through Jesus' death and resurrection, he is giving us a new identity, new joys, new perspectives, new mission, and one day a new heavens and a new earth. It's like the gospel of Jesus as Lord is the Magna Carta of discipleship. The gospel is the constitution of disciple-making. And just like the word disciple, in the New Testament, the word gospel can be both a noun and a verb. Now, the deal is <clears throat> we don't use it as a verb in English we say things like preach the gospel, live the gospel, share the gospel, and all those are great. But in the Greek of the New Testament, sometimes you just gospel people, which sounds really fun, like you just got gospeled, which is a really fun thought. Um, there is one English word, evangelize, which kind of comes close, but it, it has come to only mean telling uh, people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus's invitation of life. And in the New Testament, it's, it's a little bit wider <clears throat> than that. And so Here's the deal. My big idea for all of today is one simple thing, and that is that using gospel as a verb is the mission leg of the stool, and it's the mission corner of the triangle. So here's our question, really simple today. How do you gospel somebody? That's what we need to think about. And learning how to do this naturally is crucial to missional faithfulness. But here's the deal. The gospel is not just free-floating good news. It's good news about a relationship. It's not static and transactional. It's dynamic, and it engages people uniquely. So the gospel is good news that meets people where they are and always seeks to bring salvation and healing and restoration right there. That's what God is up to. So how do you gospel differently? <clears throat> Think about it. How do you gospel somebody who is considering divorce? If they're a Christian, do they have biblical grounds for divorce? And how should they process something so fragile in light of Jesus? And how can they live in that really tough space in a way that makes them trust and act like Jesus more? Now watch this. <clears throat> how you gospel somebody considering divorce is different than how you gospel somebody who is depressed and really, really scared and saying dark things about how they don't have a reason to live. And that's different than how you gospel people in their 20s who are figuring life out. And that's different than people with different cultural backgrounds than you. And that's different than people in different religions than you. And that's different than gospeling your kids in Jesus' name, right? What, what I'm saying here is that learning to, to good news people in the verbal sense includes both the solid core of who Jesus is and what he came to do, but it also includes the different ways that Jesus wants to engage people with grace and truth right where they are. So this kind of like elongates and extends our question. So the question is, how do you gospel at all? Like, do you even gospel? That's the question. But then you have to keep going and go, how do you gospel differently in different contexts? And asking this question, both the short version and the long version, this is the disciples' task. Like we, we have to do this, wrestle with this, and then learn it as a holy art, if you will. And here's how we're going to go about answering our question today. We're going to go to Philippians chapter two. So you can go ahead and get there in your Bibles if you want to. Philippians chapter two. 
and this is what we're gonna do, two things. <clears throat> we're gonna look at how Jesus gospeled us, and then we're gonna take some notes about five actions in that, five actions in how Jesus gospeled us, and then we're gonna ponder what it looks like to do the same to and for others. That's the second thing that we're gonna do. And the logic in what I want to do today is really simple. Jesus gospeled us. That was his mission. He has and is and will continue to good news others. And his mission becomes ours as we learn to partner with him. And then this is the disciple becoming like the rabbi from Matthew chapter 10. We've mentioned that several times. So how do you gospel? Yes, but how do you gospel uniquely depending on who or what is in front of you, and so we should take notes from Jesus. And we will do so in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Philippians two, five through 11, and it's been a while, so I'm gonna read our passage, and then I get my line, the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line collectively, out loud, happily together, thanks be to God. Um, And let's, let's be grateful for God's truth in Holy Scripture, and again, it's been a while, so make it a good one, make it count. Philippians two, five through 11, how do you gospel? Here we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Messiah Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, It's going to require a lot of restraint out of me. I'm a Bible nerd guy. It's gonna require a lot of restraint not to do a deep dive on these verses. This was actually a first century hymn. I also love old hymns. This was a first century hymn that the early church used to uh, recite and sing as like a little gospel capsule to remind them of what they believed. And so before we look at five specific steps, I do need to clarify a couple of things in our passage. There's some language here that for some, it can be theologically puzzling. Look at verse six. When it says that Jesus existed in the form of God, this is poetry, it's a song, don't forget. And so this is a strange phrase to translate. The original word form in in Greek, it is a word about essence and substance. So this phrase is not questioning, but rather asserting Jesus's deity and divinity. Also verse six, look, look, look. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What in the world does that mean? Well, again, poetry. But the line implies the same as the form of God. He didn't have to reach out for divinity and grab a hold of it because he himself is fully divine. But here's the deal. Watch, watch, watch. What he does with his divinity is the surprising thing. Verse 7. He emptied himself. If you have a new international version, in NIV, it said he made, it says he made himself nothing. The picture is one of Jesus stepping from heaven to earth. And in doing so, watch this, he sets aside the employment, it's a key word, he sets aside the employment of his own divinity. So he never stopped being God, but when he came from heaven to earth, he didn't live out of his 
godness. Rather, he lived and died and lived again in the power of the Spirit and not in the power of his own divinity. So that is the emptying of verse 7, which takes us to verse 8. He humbled himself even to the cross, and he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. <clears throat> now, Again, I gotta do some restraint here because there are way more flowery fun and uh, like obnoxious and elaborate ways to talk about this theologically. But this quick flyover is gonna be foundational as we think about how to gospel. So don't forget, this is Jesus's mission that he came to gospel us and we're supposed to get on board with it. So let's phrase all of this stuff in a way that shows us how he gospeled us and how we can gospel others. So here they are. This is how you gospel in five steps from Philippians to step number one, recognition of the gospel need, recognition of gospel need. Now out of the five steps here, this one is the one that is most implicit and not explicit in our passage. However, from the rest of the entire Bible, we know that Jesus came to deal with the problems, the need, of sin and death. But if you are curious about the need in Philippians chapter two, in verse five, look at verse five, Paul says, have this mind or this mindset or this way of thinking among you. And Paul commands them to that because the deal is they weren't thinking like that. So there is a need right there. So whether it's sin and death in the broadest sense possible that we need to be restored to our creator or whether it's some specific thing like have this way of thinking or some idol or some sin or some lust, both are needs that are intended to be dealt with by the good news of Jesus. So step one, recognition of need. <clears throat> step two, movement towards the need. So even though he was and is the very essence of God, even though he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, even though he shared the glories and the joys and the bliss of heaven with the Father, because he recognized the need, he moved towards it. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> uh, I know this uh, picture breaks down, but it's still a little funny to me. I think back a few years ago, <clears throat> when I was teaching my son to play basketball and I would let him win a round of horse every once in a while. I believe that this is the, uh, the father's duty, uh, I think. Um, and I could still do it <clears throat> at the time, but I laid aside the employment of my Olympic level athleticism um, <clears throat> because I could dunk all, all over him. And so I set that aside to teach him how to be a homeschool baller. And I don't know how that's working out right now. Hey, James, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, you're on auditorium too. Now, while that's uh, just a little playful and, and, and dumb and funny, it is a, a very slight little glimmer of what Paul is getting at when he says that Jesus emptied himself. J Jesus's movement was a sanctified stooping from heaven to earth. And watch this, he's not just teaching us a skill. Jesus is, is down here and he's not afraid to get his hands dirty with the filth of our sin. Like he didn't wait for the need to go away or, or handle itself. He moved towards the disaster. He moved in the direction of the pain. <clears throat> and here's the deal, if we're honest, be honest, you and I, we do not do this. This is what we do. We watch the news, we swipe through Twitter, we scroll through Facebook, and here's what we do. We judge people from a distance in utter shock that they don't know what we know, that we're clearly more evolved and better than them. And we rarely go find ways to sit and talk with people who are different and think differently than we do. 
We don't move towards the mess. We're too scared of the mess. We think we're above the mess. But I tell you right now, if anybody, anybody ever had a chance to say this, had a chance to be above the mess, it was Jesus, and he didn't. He didn't do that. He moved towards it. My friend Matt Williams at Grace Church, when he preached his message called A Response to Racial Injustice, he said the following. He said, some people think just because it's not their problem, it's not a problem, and that's the opposite of the gospel. Jesus didn't have a sin problem. You and I had a sin problem, and Jesus made our problem his problem, and that is the gospel, and now we should do the same for others, and that's dirty preaching, okay? We, we don't think like that. The, this is the entire message of the New Testament, and Jesus, watch this, Jesus's action to make our problem his problem is verses six and seven. That's what Paul's talking about. Jesus moved towards the mess. Step three, understanding from the needs perspective. <clears throat> that sounds a little abstract, understanding from the needs perspective. And here's where I wanna be very, very clear. You can recognize the need. Oh, wow, there's a problem there. You can move towards the need. Oh, I wonder what this problem's all about. Let me think. But when you get there, you can talk to the need or about the need in ways that it doesn't understand and that helps no one, okay? You can address the need in ways that aren't helpful and in ways that just make you feel self-justified and that accomplishes nothing. And that is not the way of Christ, so to what end did Jesus empty himself? Why, why did he graciously stoop? Verse seven, to take the form of a servant and be found in the likeness of humanity. <clears throat> he came to fully share in our experience. And, and this word form in verse seven is the same word as form in verse six. So it's about essence. He was truly and fully human. Right before the summer, we, we did it, John, John 11. Jesus cried. Like he, he cried, he, he laughed, he got really tired, he got hungry, he got angry, he empathized, he sang, he smiled, he learned. He felt all the weight of life that we face and he didn't cave under pressure. And to me, this is one of my favorite reasons why I should trust Jesus because he gets it and he doesn't get it from far away. He, he came to address our problems, not just among us, but as one of us. He came to understand our need from where we sit and not from a distance. So G Jesus's mission, his gospeling us is all kinds of gritty, feet on the ground, dirty grace. And it's beautiful and it should be. Step four. Sacrificial service of the need. All of this humility that we're talking about in Jesus leads to his ultimate act of humility. Verse eight, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, Jesus is more sympathetically patient than any person ever, but he doesn't just move towards the mess and wait around beside the mess in an understanding way for the mess to get its act together. No, he goes a step further. He does what has to be done for us because we can't do it ourselves. He stands in our place as our representative. He goes to the cross to die the death that should be ours, to experience a kind of unholy separation that we deserve, to take into himself all of the judgment and darkness and guilt and shame and violence and oppression and hate that our sin has let creep out into the world. He sacrifices himself in the service of our need. First John 4, this is love, not that you love God, 
but that he loved us and gave his son for us. Romans chapter five, God shows us his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Revelation chapter one, to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. And this walks us right up to step five. Glory to the God of the gospel. Praise, honor, glory, adoration, worth be to him. This is verses nine through 11. Two weeks ago, we talked about how glory relates to mission. Glory is about worth and rank and importance and honor. And because of the action of Jesus to come from heaven to earth, to sacrifice himself for sinners, to make kingdom come, all of this shines the brightest possible spotlight on God's worth and his glory and his dignity and his importance. And because of this, God is to be esteemed and enjoyed in all and above all because of the gospel of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. And one day we are assured that because of this good news, look at verse 10, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not a marriage proposal. This is not one need. This is both needs. This is total submission and surrender. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're a disciple, if you're somebody who's submitting to him right now, then here's the deal. If we know that that's going to happen one day, we should just go ahead and get the dress rehearsal started right here, right now. This, again, is the bullseye of discipleship that we have been talking about it. To live in such a way that we imitate Jesus in the power of the Spirit to draw attention to God's infinite glory and value. So this is how you gospel in five steps. Recognition of gospel need, movement towards the need, understanding from the need's perspective, sacrificial service of the need, and glory to the God of the gospel. And if this is Jesus's mission, and it is, and if John 20 is still true, and it is, when, when, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, then we now have to think about what it looks like to gospel others as Jesus has gospeled us. And lucky for us, I am not pulling this out of thin air. I love it when I don't have to make stuff up. Just look at verse five, look at verse five. This is our first case study here, if you will. Do you see the verse five, the little word this right there? Seems pretty unimportant and consequential. Well, I'm sorry. This is a demonstrative pronoun and it is getting work done. And here's what I mean. This little word, this in verse five points forward to six through 11 and it points backwards to two, one through four. And in verses one through four, Paul, watch this, gospels them. And then he gives the paradigm for it in six through 11. Just watch me, watch me. Uh, recognition of need, verse one, look, if that means it's not happening. <clears throat> they need encouragement, comfort, and to participate in the spirit. That's recognition of need. Step two, movement towards the need. Now look at verse two. Have the same mind, the same love, be in one accord, mean, meaning move towards one another in unity. Then understanding from the need's perspective. Look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't try to offer help from just your preference or perspective. That is not humility. That is not the incarnation. That is not Christ. Next, sacrificial service of the need. <clears throat> Verse four, 
Don't look to your own interests. I love the ESV, but the word only is not there. It just says, don't set your sights on what you want. This is not my will, but yours be done. And look at, look, in humility, count others as more important than you count yourself. We don't do that. Verse five, step five, or excuse me, step five. And all of this, it brings glory to the God of the gospel when you realize that you can only do that through Jesus. And that's all of five through 11, right? It's just sitting right there. I love it when Paul just does all the sermon for me. It's right there. Thank you, Paul. And here's the deal. I'm not making this up. Paul knows what he is doing. And now we have to reiterate what we've already said. And that is, Learning, because this is an art, it's a craft, it's a skill. Learning to good news people in the verbal sense includes both the core, a solid core of who Jesus is and what he has done, and it also includes the different ways that Jesus wants to engage people with grace and truth right where they are. Again, this is salvation and vocation. Those are always parallel tracks in the Bible. Learning to gospel is the disciples' response to being gospeled by Jesus. So, Paul does this in Philippians 2. Now, how should this take shape for us? Being on mission means being able to gospel in every nook and cranny and crevice of life. Um, This idea is very similar to our gospel fluency series that we did in the summer of 2017. Maybe re-listening to some of those messages might help uh, stoke this fire a little bit, if that's something you wanna do. And we could, we could pick a thousand ways to appropriate this. Like we could talk about how do you good news anger and how do you good news pornography and gossip and, and finances and addiction and politics and family members and coworkers and friends. Like the sermon applications on this thing are endless. So I'm just gonna pick a few. And I think thinking about how to gospel in a few different areas will start us thinking about how to do it in other places. So let's pick one that's uh, pretty close to a lot of us. Let's think about marriage. How do you gospel in your marriage? Um, Sometimes when I'm doing premarital counseling or marital counseling, Evelyn, I I give the couple this old uh, love languages test. If you've never heard of it, it's really simple, logical, easy. The premise is just that everybody gives and receives love differently, different love languages. And the main categories for this are acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, gifts, and quality time. And you take this little test and the numbers add up to 30. And so usually you have a couple of categories or love languages that score higher than the rest. And a couple took it a few years ago and the guy scored a 12 on words of affirmation, which is a big deal. Anything over 10 is like, whoa, pay attention to that. And I've never, I had never seen it before and I have never seen it since, but his wife scored on words of affirmation, a zero goose egg, okay? It's, this is just, this is a unicorn. It doesn't happen. <clears throat> now, so let me tell you what this means. This means that he could say to her, you are so beautiful. Oh, you're so, so sweet. And you're so, so lovely. Oh, you're such a good mom. Or you in that dress makes me need to go pray, girl. Or whatever Christian pickup line is loud. I don't know. Like anything he said to her, any kind words, she couldn't hear it. And it turns out her dad has higher education degrees in Christian counseling and Christian theology, and he knew all the right answers, but he was never a good father. He didn't tell his daughter that he loved her until she was in her 30s, so guess what? Words meant nothing to her. 
So what does this husband do? How does this husband gospel? Well, the recognition of the need is that Jesus should be reflected in their love for each other, but she has a hard time receiving love, especially in the way that he most naturally gives it. And so he has to move towards her rather than be frustrated by her. Do you see how easy it would be to just throw your hands up in the air and just whatever? And, and he has to understand from her point of view and not his reflex reaction or what he feels, he has to understand from her point of view how she needs to be loved. And through grace and through time and through patience and, and a cute dumb little test here, he realizes the sacrifice required to love her. Quality time is her loudest love language. So he gets to reflect Jesus by just being with her. And I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. Maybe he could be going, I could, I could work on this project. I could do this. I could call this. I could. It's gonna require focus and time and energy and effort out of him. And guess what? She helps that along by learning to, against everything she feels, say affirming things to him, even though in her mind and in her experience, talk is cheap and words mean jack. Do you see that? You have to feel that. If you're married or you're gonna be married one day, there will be no health, there will be no success, there will be no God-glorifying, Jesus-centered peace or conflict resolution in your marriage if you don't seek to understand where the other person is coming from. Your biggest problem in your marriage might just be your refusal to repent of your own stuff and then sacrificially serve the other person with no strings attached. I tell you right now, in marriage, recognition of the need and moving towards the need, easy peasy, no sweat. But understanding from their perspective and then sacrificing yourself just requires too much that sometimes we throw in the towel. Even in Ephesians chapter five, when Paul talks about men and women in a Christian marriage and their distinct roles in a Christian marriage, do you know what he says right before that? <clears throat> in 521 Ephesians, do you know what he says? He says, every Christian should submit to every other Christian out of reverence for Jesus. And this means sacrificially serving one another rather than trying to fix one another is how you gospel in your marriage. And doing so in a way that reflects and points to Jesus puts the accent on God's glory, his worth, and his grace. That's what it does. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's worth it. I'm saying it's what you're called to. And this, this is hard for me. It's hard in a Christian marriage. Let's pick something else. Let's think about personal evangelism because evangelize is that English word that is kind of close to, to gospel as a verb. How do I gospel others in personal evangelism? Well, we've said this before from up here, but the Bible does not teach that we are sinners. Pastoral, like what? What did you say? Just, it teaches something a little bit more intense and fragile. It teaches that we're all sinners and victims. So we sinned against God. We rebelled against him in Genesis 3, yes. But it also says that the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. And if you're deceived, then that means you are victimized. So what does that have to do with personal evangelism? Thank you so much for asking. Well, 40 or 50 years ago, <clears throat> our culture largely shared the same moral and ethical framework. And if you share the same moral and ethical framework, you can walk up to somebody and go, hey dude, that's wrong and sinful. You should stop that. You need somebody to rescue you from your sin. But today, if you tell somebody they're wrong, they're gonna respond with this. Hey man, chill out. What's true for you isn't true for me. And morality and truth are just relative and contingent. And guess what? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna relieve you, right? You don't have to win that debate. You do not have to try to fight that debate and win it, and here's why. Because if we embrace the entire biblical picture of our broken condition, yes, we're all sinners in need of God's grace, but that also means that we'll be able to believe that every person has a story of brokenness that they want to see made whole. Meaning personal evangelism years ago could be, you're a sinner in need of a savior, and that might still work sometimes, but today, guess what's gonna, it's required of you? A little bit more time, effort, and energy. Sit with somebody and go, dude, tell me your story. What's the most hurt you've ever been? Who hurt you? Was it somebody close to you? What kind of healing have you found for that hurt? Remember, Philippians 2, Jesus came to serve, not just as our substitute, but the whole book of Hebrews, but as our sympathizer, our great high priest. We have to have both of these in view if we're gonna share the gospel effectively. There's a place where I go get coffee sometimes and there's a guy who works there in his 30s with uh, some really nice uh, tattoos and some nice gauged earrings. Uh, I think that we probably like the same music. We haven't talked about that quite yet. But I started talking to him one day and he got a religion and a philosophy degree from Furman. And underneath his watch, I noticed, I could tell, I could see the font. I could tell it was a Hebrew tattoo. And so I asked him, what it was, and it's an Old Testament word about God's love. But he said it with like, like playful disdain and, and apathy and dismissiveness, like, yeah, that was a long time ago. Like, that's kind of how he said the thing. And I wanna know what happened to that dude to make him roll his eyes at a simple, beautiful concept like God's love. Like, dude, I have read Bertrand Russell. We can, we can roll with Nietzsche. I can talk Marx, whoever, Richard Dawkins, blah, blah, blah. I'm happy to talk philosophy and atheism with you any day, but it is not a free-floating idea from a philosopher that turns you away from something as simple and beautiful as God's love. So I wanna get to the place where I can be like, dude, what happened? And recognizing that is just laying right there on the surface if I'm paying attention. But I wanna take the, the next steps. I am praying for an open door, an open conversation to ask him about what happened. And, and me trying to do that is, is the movement towards the mess thing and understanding stuff from his perspective and not mine. Like I could go in there and be like, have you read these 17 books on apologetics that prove that? No, I could, no, no, no. That's not understanding from his perspective. I wanna know what happened. And if I do figure it out, I have no clue what sacrificially serving him is gonna look like, but I pray to God that I will be willing if and when that opportunity presents itself. And this is just an example of personal evangelism in my own life. <clears throat> and if you have your eyes up, and not just on yourself, if you have your eyes up, there are things like this in your path every day that I hope you're trying to pay attention to, right? Charlie gave some helpful thoughts on these things at the end of his message last week. And for those of you who are fearful <clears throat> about these kinds of things, sharing the gospel with people, talking to people about Jesus, um, again, I want to relieve you of a little burden. <clears throat> if you think you're not smart enough or you don't know enough, that's totally okay. You need to reframe these things in your minds as just an, an opportunity to really trust Jesus and to really embody his love to others so that they see him as the fulfillment of their need. Again, I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying it's what's we're, what we're called to, right? And the more I ponder Philippians 2 and our, our five little steps here, the more I see that they comprise a movement, a narrative, if you will. The Jesus story of him drawing near is he's recognizing salvation that must be had. So he, he draws near to us. And in this movement from heaven to earth, 
Um, his humanity is him seeking to understand and empathize. And then he makes a sacrifice for us that's more glorious and hopeful than we could ever imagine. There's a movement to this, a story to this, a narrative to this. And in these steps, in the Jesus story, all other stories can find healing and a happy ending. Other stories can find their needs met and their brokenness mended here in the Jesus story, the story to end all stories. Whether that story is the story of whatever has happened in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, there's some stuff that needs to happen there. Or whether it's the, the one about your marriage, right? Or, or your kids or your extended family. Or whether it's an individual that you've been trying to share the gospel with. Or whether it's an entire people group across the world. The deal is learning to gospel can be difficult, <clears throat> but it is exactly what we are invited to. It's the language of mission that we are called to learn. This needs to be our native tongue. He has gospeled us. How should we gospel others? Now, um, <clears throat> before we land the plane on all this, I want to think about how to good news in just one more way. I want to talk about what it looks like to gospel yourself. <clears throat> and it might seem a little strange to end here, but if we recall that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, then I think this will humble us into mission, into telling others about the bread of life. And as you learn to gospel yourself, I'll go ahead and tell you, <clears throat> step one is the hardest, recognizing your own need. And here's why. Oh yeah, Jim, <clears throat> I mean, sure, I, I mess up a little bit, don't we all, ah ha ha. Yeah, 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 that, that, that's good but I don't have an ongoing sense of need and deficiency and lack in my life. You and I don't think about that, right? That's not how we roll. Just, but just think about this. <clears throat> we are often quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we're critical and suspicious of the motives of others, but we should flip that. We should critically assess our own motives and patiently give others the benefit of the doubt. Meaning we start out thinking that we know better and that our preferences and inclinations are better than others. And that's just messed up. This should make us recognize and admit that we have a constant need to submit to God's will and not our own. My friend Todd Devaney reminded me of this this past week. He said, it's hard to receive all that you need when you don't realize you're broken. And that's why step one is so hard. But if, by God's mercy, you can get a glimpse of it and you can recognize it, how do you move towards it? <clears throat> what does that mean to move towards need if you gospel yourself? I love the example of David in Psalm 103. It's like <clears throat> he puts his soul up on a shelf and he talks to it. He's like, hey, bless the Lord, oh my soul. His spirit, whatever's deep in him. He goes, all of his benefits, forget not my soul. All of it, bless his holy name, my soul. He talks to his soul. And so movement towards your own heart is having an honest conversation with yourself in Jesus' name. And it might sound dumb, but this is about unearthing your own motives and fears and talking to yourself about what is good and true and beautiful in view of the gospel. <clears throat> and if you do that, this leads you to the understanding piece. And here, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's gonna be a war of understandings. Let's say from the needs perspective, a defense must be made. So you can go on and try to defend yourself and, and back yourself up and prove yourself. And I do this all the time and it's sin. I can try to prove that I'm right. 
I can go on defending myself, or I can just chill out and trust that Jesus is my defender. He is my shield, and he will never let the righteous be forsaken. And the biggest way to not lean on your own understanding and to choose his instead is the step four thing, sacrifice. Jesus said you need to go take radical action against sin in your life, cut off your hand, rip out your eye, learn to die to self, learn to take up your cross every day and follow him, learn the art of not my will, but yours be done. Learn to not act hastily on your feelings or what you deem as rationality. And if you do all that with hope and joy in your heart, all of this is sacrifice like Jesus and for Jesus, for his glory and his honor. This is how you gospel your own heart, to put a spotlight on his beauty and his grace. This is discipleship. Your identity is now wrapped up with your rabbi. The good news about him is the defining thing in your life. Even if depression is still biting at your heels, I got, listen, listen, the tomb is empty, all right? He is your hope. Even if you still feel addicted to the approval of others, you are eternally approved of and cherished because of Jesus. If you are aching for acceptance and belonging, remember that he was separated from the Father so that you could be brought in and belong to God's family. Your past, your trauma, your abuse, your sins, your idols, your anger. Jesus has seen your great need. He sees you. He gets it. And he has brought heaven to earth. And he understands the deepest possible point of your pain and sin. And he went to the cross to make new creation happen in you and through you to bring life out of death. And here's the deal. This is where you gotta get it. If you presume on his grace and mercy, if you dare presume on his love and forgiveness, the summons to be on mission with him will never, ever be beautiful. And it has to be. Jesus gospeling us and us rehearsing the gospel to ourselves is fuel for gospeling others. And if the first part of that equation isn't sweet, and liberating and awesome to you, then you're never gonna find yourself accidentally enjoying life on mission with him. Here's the deal, friends. You will, it's not a roll of the dice. You will talk about what you love, and the more you can get in the way of God's love and the good news of Jesus, the more you will just naturally speak about that love to others, and you will gospel everybody in your path in Jesus' name. All of this on mission discipleship stuff. It is not by our own willpower, but by faith, by daily dependence on him, because he did it first. This is love, not that you love God, but that he loved you. Daily dependence on Jesus as our teacher and our savior. Fellowship Greenville, this is the gospel and this is how you gospel. Have this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Messiah Jesus. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name so that at the sound of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Now it's our turn.